1: CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Equifax continues to struggle in the quicksand of wayward patching and clumsy incident response. Congress, the FTC, the CFPB, and Do Not Pay are all taking an interest. Another unsecured database, this one for sale to political campaigns, is found and Alaska voters are affected. Kaspersky says his company is a bystander that's been hit in the Russo-American political crossfire. The U.S. Navy continues to investigate the USS McCain collision, and Harvard decides Manning won't be a Kennedy School fellow after all. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire Summary for Friday, September 15, 2017. The Equifax breach grows progressively uglier as the company confirms that a known but unpatched Apache Struts vulnerability lies at the root of the data theft it disclosed last week. The patch isn't an easy one to apply. Doing so would require rebuilding buggy Struts versions and testing them to ensure that the fix doesn't harm any necessary functionality but observers tend to think that a well-resourced organization dependent upon the security of the data it holds should have been able to manage. General outrage continues to mount, as Equifax's incident response and consequent consumer service have not impressed the millions of people affected by the hack. People complain of having been unable to get help freezing their credit when they've phoned the company. Those who've reached the credit freeze pages of Equifax's website report a variety of glitches and security problems. Some people had difficulty uploading the documents necessary to prove their identity, and post-breach were queasy about giving the credit bureau any more data. One complaint said the screen that was supposed to display the pin that would enable you to unfreeze your credit simply went blank, thus leaving one with, apparently, a permanently frozen account. Another got the pin, but noticed that instead of being randomly generated, it was simply a numerical representation of the date. That's, of course, an easy pin to guess. People also have their noses out of joint about the companies having charged them for imposing a freeze. Equifax decided late Wednesday to waive those fees and has indicated that people who paid them can have a refund. No word yet on how many disgruntled customers are turning to the robo-lawyers of do-not-pay-for-representation-in-small-claims-court. But people aren't happy. Many are calling for regulations to prevent another breach of this magnitude. Security expert Bruce Schneier, for one, thinks this isn't the sort of problem for which there's a market solution. The market is good at solving problems between buyers and sellers, but that's not what's going on in this case. We've spoken of consumer data and consumer service as opposed to customer data and service because the people affected by the breach aren't Equifax customers. They are, as Schneier puts it, Equifax's product, or more precisely, information about them is Equifax's product. Equifax's customers are businesses engaged in assessing the kind of credit risk individuals they might do business with pose. The Federal Trade Commission has, as expected, opened an investigation into the incident, and that's not good news for Equifax, as the FTC is notoriously one of the more aggressive and punitive regulatory bodies in the U.S. federal landscape. It's unusual for the FTC to announce that it's begun an investigation. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has also begun its own investigation. There's another problem with a misconfigured cloud database. This one, a CouchDB database, was found openly accessible on the web, not even a password needed, where it stayed until it was secured and taken offline Monday. Discovered by security researchers at Crumtech, which has been finding a lot of these lately, the database was compiled by TargetSmart, a political campaign data broker. The compromised information includes name, address, date of birth, ethnicity, marital status, voting preferences, political issues and causes an individual might be lobbied on, the ages of a person's children, if any, household income, and whether or not the voter is a homeowner. Target Smart says it's not to blame. A third party that licensed some of the data from Target Smart equals three is the outfit that exposed the information. Returning to Congress, another executive who will be testifying there under challenging but possibly less hostile conditions is Eugene Kaspersky. The Russian-based security software company that bears his name was this week the subject of a binding operational directive from the Department of Homeland Security, giving the executive branch as a whole, and remember, that's the really big branch of the federal government, 90 days to find any Kaspersky software they may have and get it off their networks. This follows months of quiet FBI warnings, removal of Kaspersky from some federal contracting vehicles, and the decision by Best Buy to no longer carry Kaspersky's consumer and small business security tools. The DHS directive is based on its assessment that the Russian company poses a risk. The text of the directive is brief and terse, but it emphasizes that Russian law requires Russian companies to cooperate as directed with Russian intelligence and security services. Kaspersky himself says the hostile scrutiny he's received is unwarranted, and that he's simply caught in the crossfire of a Russo-American geopolitical shootout. The U.S. Navy has dispatched a cyber investigation team to look into the USS McCain's collision with a merchant ship near Singapore. No evidence of hacking is so far known, but absence of evidence isn't yet being taken as evidence of absence. WikiLeaks is doing some trolling of U.S. DCI Pompeo over Pompeo's complaint to Harvard that the university's offer of a Kennedy School Fellowship to Chelsea Manning disgracefully honored someone who betrayed the U.S. and the warrior ethos. WikiLeaks' Assange thinks the outrage is selective. Harvard has since rescinded the offer, the withdrawal accompanied by a statement from the dean that it didn't realize a fellowship would be perceived as an honor. Assange's trolling gets some enthusiastic meta-trolling from RT, the news organization formerly known as Russia Today. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. And joining me once again is Justin Harvey. He's the Global Incident Response Leader at Accenture. Justin, welcome back. Um, We wanted to take a a little different approach to things today. We wanted to sort of take a a look behind the scenes, uh, share what is it like uh, a day in the life of an incident response team? What can you tell us about that?
0: Well, a day in the life of an incident responder is uh, there are some similarities between working as an incident responder for a major corporation or the government and working as an incident responder for, uh, for Accenture, for a consulting organization. The similarities are that both of the, of the roles, uh, both consulting and a corporate-based role, are focused on responding to the latest threats that organizations face. And an incident response job is uh stressful it is uh moving from one cyber attack from one cyber incident to another how should i put this they're ve- they're a skilled trade meaning uh it's much like detectives for uh, a police department whereas you don't see very many rookie detectives you see detectives who have spent 5 10 15 20 years as beat cops and they move to be a detective and it's the same thing with incident response it's very difficult to go out and get the necessary training uh, without having uh, a lot of experience under your belt. One of the true differences between uh, doing incident response for a company versus a consulting company is that you're exposed to many more environments and you really don't know what you're getting into uh, from a consulting angle. But both of these types of, of roles, regardless of who you work for, you always have to be prepared to respond to basically any type of incident. I'm not sure if you know this, Dave, but all incidents happen Uh, on Fridays after five (laughs) (laughs) o'clock before a three-day weekend. So uh, incident responders have to be uh, very agile uh, or they have to be flexible from from their time perspective. Many weekends are spent uh, working on problems. Uh, And then the last thing I would say would be not all of us or not all incident responders are always working on an incident. So you have to fill your time with activities that are either increasing your knowledge of the threats that are out there or doing threat hunting, essentially looking for the next incident to respond to.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, about the notion of, of is it purely reactive or is there a proactive side to it as well?
0: yeah the the proactive side to incident response is threat hunting and it is a great means of operating what we call in a continuous response manner meaning if we are to uh, embrace the adage breaches are inevitable then then organizations need to get better and faster at finding the next incident or the next breach and therefore the incident response team has the necessary skills, they've got the access, and they also have the methodology in order to find those threats. A threat hunt program could be searching for anomalous or suspicious activity within a SIM. It could be taking the latest anomalous or suspicious indicators, of compromise from open source intelligence or closed source intelligence, and scanning uh, your organization's endpoints. Or it could just simply be working through the existing caseload and looking for the stuff that doesn't add up.
1: All right, interesting stuff. It takes a special certain kind of personality, I guess, to succeed, uh, to thrive as a member of an incident <laughs> response team. But uh, glad you guys are out there. Justin Harvey, thanks for joining us. Our lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program with the largest network of trust centers That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is Luke Beeson. He's the vice president for security in the UK and continental Europe at BT in London, leading a team who delivers their cybersecurity services to customers while protecting BT's own systems as well. We began our conversation discussing the challenges a large organization like BT faces when it comes to protecting themselves and their clients.
2: When you're a company with over, over 100,000 employees, uh, and you're operating across 180 countries, remaining nimble, keeping agile it can be difficult. One, one of the things we've done, which has helped greatly, is um, we've tried to embrace new technology and we've done that um, through something called our cyber assessment lab so we have um, a a team of people in our research and development center um, here in the UK in in, in Ipswich um, and they are constantly um, testing and evaluating New security technology. And we're then bringing that to play in BT when we, when we deem it uh, appropriate and, and when we think the technology has reached a maturity level that we can deploy it. So that's from a technology perspective. That's what we're doing. Um, but we're too quick to talk about technology and security. Um, and so we should also talk about people. So from a people perspective, um, we're investing heavily in bringing in um, new recruits, specifically uh, new apprentices. So uh, school leaders um, who have uh, an aptitude and awareness thinking uh, that we think fits well in in cyber security and also graduates, fresh graduates. So we're starting to very much build our own uh, human intelligence and and human capability. I think it's really important that we focus on the people side of security as much as we do on the the technology side because ultimately this is a people problem and and we need people to help uh, help solve it. So, um, yeah, a focus on new intake and and improving the the skill set is really important as well. If we made cars in the same way that we made cars 100 years ago, for sure we'd have a skills shortage of of car makers. But what we've done, of course, is we've evolved how we we make cars and actually we've introduced a lot of automation and robotics. And we don't need so many people to make cars. And and I think the skills shortage that we will talk about in the security domain, no no doubt it's a problem, uh, particularly at the very high end of the skill set. But I do believe that a combination of upskilling of existing resource and better orchestration and automation, as we described earlier, probably ultimately holds the answer. So I I don't think necessarily the answer is um, getting hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of more people doing computer science degrees, as much as I'd like that to happen. I think it's probably a combination of that and uh, more orchestration and and automation.
1: How do you personally prioritize your responses to uh, the various indicators that come in? When your team comes to you and says, you know, these are the things that are happening uh, in our network, um, you know, to our customers, what's your process for choosing what demands your immediate attention?
2: Yeah, so for, for us and for our customers, we would go through a process of understanding the critical aspects and invariably in information security, that's applications. So we would use that as a, a taxonomy to then prioritize indicators. So, for example, if we saw a significant threat against our BT sport platform and there was about to be a, a, a live football, or I should say soccer, should soccer match on, <laughs> um, we, we would jump on that right away. So, so it's a combination of, you know, operational imperatives and understanding what your critical assets are and and, and using that to, to prioritize the indicators. And we do exactly the same with our customers. So we'd sit down with our customers for a day or longer if it was required to really understand what it is that's crucial to their to, to keep their business running, and then if we start to see threats or indicators against those particular assets.
1: What sort of general advice do you have for those who are in the cybersecurity business, from the vantage point that you have with BT? Uh, what sort of advice would you give for those who are out there, you know, fighting the good fight every day, trying to protect themselves and their customers?
2: I think, and this might sound uh, counterintuitive, but I would urge people to try to achieve simplicity. I think in the security domain, we are very good at overcomplicating situation. And, and granted, sometimes it can be very complicated. But in, in my experience, keeping things very simple, focusing in on your most uh, critical assets, uh, being very clear about the impact of any particular incident so that it gets a pro- proportionate response, and really bringing things down to their core components to, to keep them simple and keep it in the language of the organization that you're working within. so it, it makes sense and, and we always talk about uh, security or cyber security being a board level agenda item well, well it might it might well be, but you know we're speaking a different language to the board then we're going to quite quickly get out of alignment. So I think it's about simplicity. It's about speaking the language of the organization that you're working in. And it's about focusing in on outcomes to make the organization uh, more secure.
1: Our thanks to Luke Beeson for joining us. And thanks to Joel Hare from BT for coordinating the call from the other side of the pond. You can hear more of my conversation with Luke Beeson on an upcoming episode of the Recorded Future podcast. That'll post this coming Monday. Among the topics we discuss is the effect the upcoming GDPR regulations may have on BT and other organizations around the world. So, do check that out. And that's the Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security.